Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel that we're going to be covering is a lot of fun for a few reasons. One, it's going to bring back our action sequel expert, Andrew Paris, for the first time in a long time. And if you're a wrestling fan and you're listening to this when this was supposed to come out in January 2024, Randy Orton, the star of 12 Rounds 2 Reloaded, is going to be going for the title at Royal Rumble, which is going to be a lot of fun. So, yeah, really, I cannot wait to have Andrew back, and I can't wait to talk about this movie because I love the first one. And for it, what a great interview. Man, one one of my favorites that I've done because there was – so many, so many different topics that we covered that was not about film. And that's with composer Nathan First. You hear the name? You're like, oh, I, what, didn't you have somebody with that last uh, last name on last year? You're right. Griff First, his brother, uh, was on. He's the actor. Nathan's the music. And it's cool to get to collab. You know, they, have a mo- they have a movie that just came out talking about wrestling that just came out not too long ago that they were able to collaborate on called Hidden Strike, Jackie Chan, John Cena. It's on Netflix. Check it out, uh, which is uh, – I can't wait to watch it. Ever since we talked, it's been on my list, but I've been so busy. Kids, man, I tell you. But, uh, yeah, so it's cool they've collabed on that and then some other sci-fi movies. So we talk about the whole sci-fi movie genre and how people can be pigeonholed into a a genre. Then we also talked about their, you know, his dad, uh, legendary comedic actor, Stephen First. You know him as Flounder from Animal House, St. Elsewhere, Dream Team, you name it, he's been in it. It's just such a legend. So, and Nathan's a little bit older than his brother, so he had some really cool stories uh, about his dad, and it, it was really nice. It was really nice. And he remembered his time on sets, had a great story about being on the set of Scene Elsewhere, and then also a cool story about being on the set of Dream Team, underrated classic. But yeah, we talked about really how somebody goes about getting into this biz in the beginning. You know, Nathan wanted to act, and he fell in love with music. Back to the Future changed his life uh, from the, the score of that one. And, yeah, we talked about his early days, how, you know, he was really – he worked on Christmas Vacation, the sequel, but he was really – you know, it was really just getting your foot in the door. That's the only way you can get into the business is to get your foot in the door. And then he hit – what big break for him when, when he was talking about Bionicle. Uh, you know, he worked on that, and then that – you know, went to be so many things after it. You know, six or seven different projects were involved with that. And it was just interesting to hear again. I never knew about directors interviewing, I never thought about the composer interview. And just what he talked about was pretty wild that everybody, you know, I'll let him tell it better, but it's, it was not what I thought it would be, which was pretty interesting. And it was kind of like, I don't know, I left a bad t- taste in my mouth the way they do it. And then we talked about, uh, you know, the difference in working in different budgets. Like he worked, he had a great experience working on Need for Speed for, you know, for a major studio with DreamWorks. This interview is a lot of fun. You know what? I always love when I'm asking questions and they're answering and telling stories, but there's a lot of conversation. You know, Nathan loves film. Obviously, it's in his blood. He was in Animal House. Uh, You know, he was in his mom's. You know, Belly, she played the girl that sold the marbles to uh, his dad in in the movie. So it was just cool to really talk about just so many different aspects of the film world. You know, when it comes to, you know, composers and AI and how, you know, the contracts and 
a lot of stuff that we covered. Great interview. I'm going to shut my yapper because I know I'm going on. But I'll put Nathan's IMDb also in the episode notes so you could, uh, you know, really just go and check out, you know, all his other credits and all the others. And I'm sure so many of you are going to be like, oh, I've watched that before. Because that's what I did. I was like, wow, man, 12 rounds too. I, that movie was awesome. So do me a favor. If you're new here, please subscribe. Follow us on all social media at sequels only. And if you go on YouTube, if you're a YouTuber, uh, Find us, subscribe, try to get as many as we can uh, because maybe they'll give us like a prize or something. I don't know. But uh, without further ado, here is composer Nathan First. People asking for about kids and siblings. That's not something I usually ask. And then, then afterwards I find out like, oh, that person's kid is in the show or that person's brother. But like we talked right. about so many of the beginnings for your brother and it just, I didn't, it never asked and it never came up. So that's why when my buddy Jamie reached out to you, he didn't even put two and two together, like the last names. And of course, like with your oh, father being, you know, so are you the oldest? I know, right? I am the You're oldest, the old- barely. Okay. Only, only barely? by numbers though. I don't know. I, I, but only by numbers, by three years. I'm, I'm a few years older than him. But, uh, oh, you know, cool. does that speak to, you know, as far as maturity or whatever? I don't know. If, yeah. I know if I'm really the older. Well, well, you know, time will tell, I suppose. Yeah, right. So you but were yeah, more. Yeah. So, so, so you were more of aware of like, I, I know his, he said his earliest memories were like being on set of going to like St. Elsewhere. But you were like more oh, aware yeah. of who your dad was, right? Yeah, I would say, you know, our experiences are about the same. It's not like, oh, well, I remember going to all these other things that he didn't because of some age difference. We would yeah. have a lot of the same things. I might have a little bit more, like, of a stronger memory on certain things. Like, we would uh, – <laughs> one, one of my favorite memories, actually, as a child is we would um, – I have a memory of, of basically terrorizing – we would terrorize the St. Elsewhere set. So <laughs> – you know, it was, a, it was a big, massive set that, from my memory, generally, you could sort of walk the map of the hospital. In other words, the hallway was connected to, you know, an operating room, which was, you know, it was actually a flow through. And uh, so they would be shooting in, like, one hospital room, and my brother and I would have found, like, wheelchairs and were racing them down <laughs> the hallway where they're not shooting and just constantly interrupting the takes and all these other things. There's a there's a great story that I'm going to go ahead and pin on Griff. Sorry, buddy. Um, where, where uh, from our memory of uh, my my dad was in a scene, and my brother and I are off to the side of the camera, and I believe it was Howie Mandel offered one of us, whichever one of us was willing to go, just walk right in and ruin the shot right now. He'll give us a twenty, right? And, and classic to our personalities. I'm just like I'm not. I'm not like I wouldn't. Oh my God, ruin the shot! I'm not gonna like I'd be too scared to. From my memory, at least, my my brother, little brother Griff, at the time he must be five or something, you know, without even hesitation, swipes that twenty, walks right into the shot, and uh, the director has to go cut, 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 cut. What's up, you know? So uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that the first boys were pretty infamous at some of the at some of the <laughs> sets. No doubt, so, I, I have no doubt in my mind. Yeah. So like, when was it the point when, like, how did you decide, Hey, obviously you grew up with everything being in it, hanging out at sets, you know, your dad, I'm sure. I don't know if he's doing like line reading at home, but I'm sure just being around him, you understand, you know, the part of acting. Did you think about acting first or was it, you always in love with music or. 
No, absolutely. I thought of acting first. Um, well, you know, when I was really young, I mean, when am I, you know, probably when I'm around 10 to, to becoming a teenager, 12, 13, 14, I would actually read lines with my dad. So if you had an oh, audition cool. or had an important scene, you know, if he's on Babylon 5 or whatever, and for the most part, he doesn't need to be, he's not nervous about it or whatever, but maybe sometimes, you know, he might have like a long monologue that like mattered, you know, to him, you know? So I yeah. would run, I would run lines with him. And then, you know, my job was just to, you know, obviously I wasn't like <laughs> giving him acting notes, but it was really just to make sure he memorized the lines and then to feed him the, feed him the ends. But, but that's a, we would do that a lot. But, um, so yeah, definitely when I was young, probably when I was 10, I did a few commercials actually. Oh, no um, way. For I what? Local them. stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. At the, at was local. Not yet. Yeah, was local. I did a pizza commercial that was based out of Arizona when I was like nine or 10. And then I did a, a TV, I was on like a TV pilot. You know, I just really wanted to be an actor like that. I'm like 10 at the time. But then uh, pretty, pretty quickly, I sort of just sort of migrated over to music. Um, you know, uh, what was it? I guess it, I guess there was something about, I, I did enjoy acting and I liked that process, but then I would go into the movie theaters and just, it would be the music that made me go like, oh, that's for me, that's what made movies three-dimensional. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that's what, I think that was it, you know, as soon as I saw, you know, Back to the Future in the movie theater. And then I have a distinct memory of watching Danny Elfman's Batman in the theater. You know, it's 1989 or whatever, so I'm 10, yeah. 11. And uh, that changed it for me. So then it was just from that point on, from like 12, I would say it's like, okay, no, I want to be, I want to be, I, I knew I wanted to be a composer from the time I was 12, like specifically wow. film scores, which is probably... Probably weird, but I did. I don't know why. No, you felt it. You felt mm. emotion. You're right. Like there's sometimes you can watch a movie and like, like if there's a scary scene that comes out in a movie, you can close your eyes and you won't visually see it, but the music can still give you that feeling of like what's happening in the scene, like what's coming up before even a dialogue says it, or maybe even you yeah. see something, the music can like get you ready for it in a way. Yeah, if it does, if it does it right, it does it without getting you too ready for it, obviously. But I, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even from a technical, like everybody knows the bit of like if you're doing a horror movie, you know, the music, you know, you would want the music to actually fade out like two to three seconds, so you have silence for a few seconds mm -hmm. before your big, you know, reveal or whatever. <laughs> and music obviously plays a huge role in that. I mean, especially something like horror movies. If you look at, um, you know, if you, if you if you turn on a horror movie, you know, for the first hour or so and just mute it there's often not very much happening on the frame you know yeah. a lot of that is being told with sound and with music you know whether yeah. it's ambience or stings or the other things and uh it can really guide it in a in a really interesting way you know but i also came up with when movie scores were really big on themes in the 90s and stuff like that you know you, you would walk away from a movie like wanting to hum the theme which is yeah, not as yeah. much of a thing anymore right so so I definitely was a fan of just sort of like the music almost being a part of the universe of the movie that you're building and, and universe in a, in a, in a very um, uh, isolated, you know, in a, in a very different way than one might mean it now. I don't mean universe is obviously like a Marvel movie, but like if you're setting yeah. up uh, Forrest Gump, if you're, if you're setting up uh, any of these other movies, you know, that has its own world. What does it feel like? What does it, smell sound like all these other things and the score is a huge part of that i think you know in no, those kind totally. of movies 
No, I agree. And you so. mentioned Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman's like one of those people, like when I would be like studying for school or uh, masters, or if I just need to relax, I can just, and what's cool about him, you can listen to all of his soundtracks and they sound totally yeah. different. And and I listened to an interview with him. He was on Marin not too long ago. And he's like, I, I kind of like that. He goes, I don't like to do the same projects back to back. I don't like to do like a comedy to a comedy. He's like, it has to be like totally different. So I like adjust my brain. And anyway, I was like, that was pretty interesting. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, I, I know I've done, I've gone periods of time where I was doing the exact same kind of thing back to back. And it definitely, for me at least, hinders sort of that creative coming at it fresh thing. Because you start yeah. to you start to just do sort of the same things. Just well, I knew this worked on the other yeah. thing, and and you're on a schedule. So you know, as humans, we're we're, we're inherently lazy, right? We're going to reach to what we know, yeah. what we know will work. Uh, you know, no matter how artisty we we can be, you know, how unique we want to be. So yeah, yeah, so absolutely, going from like an action movie to an animation thing, or going to you know something of that nature, you know, where it's a, such a different vibe can be a really it's also a lot of fun to do that yeah because especially if you're if you're if you're an artist type uh there's a there's a chance you might be somewhat neurodivergent so you don't necessarily want to you know there's a, there's a there's a monotony that sets in and you know yeah. that we we crave that sort of looking at everything differently so i i absolutely would agree with that um you know i've enjoyed writing music that i didn't even enjoy necessarily writing you know, I've done stuff where I would write an orchestral score and then for, you know, for like a commercial or a small video game, someone asked me to do like some sort of super EDM-ish, you know, at the time dubstepy sort of vibe, right? And it's <laughs> like, that's not necessarily my vibe, but it was a lot of fun because I'm not, I'm not in that world anymore. You know, I'm not in my classical world anymore. I was fiddling with synth knobs and stuff like that, which is, so yeah, changing up's great. That'd be that's amazing, awesome. You know? So, so what were your steps like from 12, you know, Batman changed you. You said, this is what I want to do. What was like the steps like schooling wise? Was it a lot of at home stuff tinkering around on your own? Cause you have some credits that are pretty, if you're, if you're that age in 89, it's like 98. You have like your first credit doing this. That's so you're 19. Yeah. I was 20, 21. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause, uh, cause again, like by 12, I was pretty focused on it and I dropped, I, I left, uh, I would ditch school a lot. <laughs> <frankly>. Yeah. <laughs> so including including music classes because I was just I was just I was so focused on being a film composer that you know certain you know theory classes that are you know specific to a time period you know that I don't plan on getting into I would you know shove off or whatever which in retrospect may not have been great but um, <laughs> at the time being a teenager you know I'm so focused like no no I'm gonna be Exactly like Jason Howard, exactly like Alan. It was so focused. Um, so yeah, so I would I built my first studio mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, from uh, using like a cracked ripoff version of Cakewalk from an old like a four whatever they called it, an old PC a four eighty six or something. Anyway, I'm starting to sound like an old man. Um, starting, uh, but. Uh, so if you're just from like a hack thing of, of cakewalk and I was just sitting there learning sequencing and just trying to figure it out. So I'd be in my bedroom at 15, 16, just trying to figure that kind of thing out. Um, so it was very like my, my education is all self and it's very hyper-focused for better or for worse. So there's definitely going to be holes in it. Um, it's very much like what I wanted to do. 
So yeah. yeah. So around the time I graduated high school, I did a few months in college. And then I actually dropped out of college um, because I saw myself. I, I just, I don't have, I'm not a patient person. So I saw this like, okay, well, I'm not going to take two years of choral theory in order to get to orchestration in order to, you know, whatever it was. It's just, it didn't, I wanted to fast track it. So I dropped out and I started interning at like studios and with composers and literally just shadowing them and, and like sitting behind them. And then when I was 20, I did a couple of like student films, but I also started ghostwriting some cartoons for a composer really? who was like super busy. He did like, he had like 10 cartoons or something at a time um, on Sony when they would do Saturday morning cartoons, you know, this is the late nineties, you know, 98, yeah. 99. And uh, you know, in that time, I would imagine, you know, I mean, I would imagine right now, it was a lot harder to, to be a guy who has 10 shows going at once because, you know, the streamlined process of writing a score from a, from a studio with samples was not what it is now, which is super straight ahead and easy. Um, so, yeah, he needed help and he needed help fast. So I ended up ghostwriting on some of these shows, like the first version of... Um, well, I guess there was only one version of like Starship Troopers and 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 uh, Dragon Tales and oh, all these yeah. things that many people won't, won't know. And then I got an opportunity to to sort of co-compose, which was really I was ghostwriting it, but I was getting credit on the show called Max Steel, which oh, I think now has like gone through a couple different versions. But I'm talking like the super wonky version, like circa 2000. You know what I mean? And it's just this like the anime, the, the, the motion capture on it is like pretty silly. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I had so much fun. And I was doing that show at 20, 21. And then shortly after that, I did this, um, I did this audition for these Bionicle movies. And then since then, I was able to just keep working. And that's from the age of, yeah, 20. That's awesome. I think one thing that's cool is you and your brother, obviously I had the opportunity to work later, but I thought it was cool that both of you guys worked on you and your, uh, I know, I think he called him uncle, uncle Stuart Pankin when your dad and him would do those, uh, those like sketch that, uh, it was for like a diabetes association, right? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I forgot about that. Oh my God. Yeah. So he did this, he would do this like diabetes awareness thing. And it was like, it was like a parody movie and you know, it's like they're doing it on a shoestring budget and we're working with Stuart Pankin and, and we're, and it's just, it's been a lot of, it's, so that's how it starts as we would work together and dad would bring us in. And I mean, to this day, my brother and I sort of work together. It's, it's, that's cool. It's very, it's so funny. I think people see a lot of that sort of the Nepo baby thing, but there's a, there's a flip side to that of just the, the comfort and the trust that comes from working with family. You know, like somebody just like, you know, you know that they're going to want, they're going to encourage you to, 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 to succeed with your ideas. You know, it's all these kind of things and all that sort of, a lot of the political stuff that happens in, in this town can sort of go away. So I definitely understand the appeal of like working with family, you know, because it, it really, it's one of the few ways you can have that really genuine of just like, let's make a show kind of an energy. Of just yeah. like, you know, it's not about this. It's not about that. It's not about billing. It's not about budget. It's not about that. It's about how do we put on a show? And just, it's just the excitement of that. Um, and it's always great when you can get back to that feeling. Yeah. No, that's so awesome. we did that with that. And then I think my dad even directed one of those uh, sci-fi channel movies very early on. And I was the composer of that. And my brother <laughs> was in it. 
as well. That's awesome. You know, being directed by him. So it's like, you know, it's just like, and, we, and, and it's just a lot of fun. And then now he's, you know, he's, uh, he's producing all these movies that are just getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And the Billy Bob one. He calls me. Yeah. yeah. The, Bill, the Billy Bob one. When I, like, I thought that was wild. Just the ones that he did before. Know, we were kind cool? of talking about how hard it is to make that leap as an actor or even director to go from sci-fi channel. It's almost like a, it's almost like a taboo word. It's word. It's like, Oh yeah, I was in the sci-fi channel movie. It's like, all right, well we can't have you in this A-list movie for, for the most part with some people. So when he said that he produced that other movie, I was like, Oh my God, that's a big 180. That was big for him. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really great to see him sort of just like blow through and shine in, in, get past some of those older credits, you know what I mean? Cause that's yeah. the thing is it's like, I guess there's two ways to look at it. And, and some people in this town have the benefit of like having independent wealth, whether it's from, you know, you know, whether their parent was a movie star or something, or it's just like, Oh, my parents, you know, my family's in steel, you know, and they want to be an artist, you know, um, it could be really, uh, it could be challenging, uh, to, to do it with no money. So what you have to do is like, sometimes it's just work is work. So you take the work you can get and you're not, you can't always prioritize, well, well, what's the trajectory I want in 15 years? You know, you can't always govern that way. It's just about, well, I need to do what I love to keep working and pay the bills. So um, especially 20 years ago and on, and maybe even 10 years ago, I would say that that's even more true. Like if you were yeah. doing sci-fi channel movies or if you had that on your credit, like, dude, you ain't doing any big movies. You ain't doing any of that. Um, but I think that's less so more and more now. Like more and more you can get, you can... I think more because as this sort of gig culture, it's it's everywhere essentially. Of just like, yeah, you just do whatever you need to do. So I think there's a little bit less of that. Thank God. Um, yeah, there's a lot more opportunities floating around out there. It's a different kind of thing. No, it's good. It's fair because there's some actresses like I talked to this one lady, Monique Parent. She was in a lot of those uh, like Skinamax movies, but she wasn't like that part of the Skinamax. She was like kind of like sure. a, just an actress in those. And maybe like her clothes fell off or something, but I feel bad for her. Cause she does all this. Sure, channel the- yeah. Yeah, exactly. But she like sure. has to do auditions and now, like now and use a fake name because she got a, a gig on as a regular on like a CBS show. And then once they looked at her credits or something, somehow they found out like what she did in the nineties. Uh, she put it off I of there. See. So it was like this whole taboo thing. So when she goes on auditions now, like she was in like a Bieber video, like not in a big role, but she had to use a fake name because she got caught out on the other one. And I think that's, uh, I get it, but who's watching a show with their family and be like, Hey, let me look at all that. What's it? What'd that yeah, lady yeah. do in 92? <laughs> no, I, t- I actually totally agree. I totally agree. And yeah, that's different than the site, like the sci-fi channel thing or whatever. But yeah, if you were doing anything like that's softcore yeah. or whatever, yeah. then transitioning you know, it's like, it's almost like you can only transition as like a homage or, or, or like a parody of yourself. Like almost like what Tracy Lords was doing for a minute back yes. in the day where she would show up in comedy movies as like, you know, whatever, some as herself or whatever. Yeah. Um, but no, I agree. I agree. It's kind of silly. And, and um, yeah, especially, especially I forget, I forget whose name you just said, but. Oh but no, Moaning Parent. Like yeah. Moaning Parent. I'm sorry, Moaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, you know, she's, she's auditioning, especially for like Disney Channel. Or anything like that, yeah, she would have to totally and they're deep over there, you know, with all oh, the morality yeah. clauses and the contracts and stuff like that. And then I think more and more people are doing morality clauses these days too. So yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. weird, man. It's weird. I don't agree with it either. I don't agree with it either. 
Yeah, because it's not fair to be like, it's like, hey, we need to hire someone. Uh, we need experience. Let's your experience. Oh, it's not the exact experience you want. So it's like this little like kind of game because it, how hard is it to get your first job in exactly what historically should be your first job? It, it's difficult. Even, you know, your credits, it, it's so cool with even yours too and looking up and they just keep getting bigger and bigger. And then you did like Active Valor and oh, there's thanks, like a man. bunch yeah. of bigger name movies on there. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, that's that's was that was luckily I, I teamed up with a director and with some people with a company called Bandito Brothers, um, and and the director Scott Law and we were had a great partnership going. We started with Dust to Glory, which actually that's a great that was a that was very lucky on my part. So like so I did a I auditioned for these and did these Bionicle cartoons, which was a trilogy that became this like massive. Yeah. sort of success i guess which was crazy and then that the the lawyer for for who was like working in post-production on that suggested me to uh scott waugh and dana brown for this for this documentary called dust to glory and it's like i don't know anything about it i met with these guys <laughs> they were really cool and we just had this really amazing interaction relationship that where they pushed they pushed it man they would show up to my studio at 2 in the a.m sometimes and but it was that was actually one of those things where it just really felt like that dynamic really felt like it, what, okay, what do we do to just make a show? What does it take to just make something as great as it can possibly be, no matter what that means. Right. And I always love that energy. And so we did that. And then, yeah, we did active. We did, we did actually some like Navy short films. as like a test uh, in, in, in the aughts, you know, and then we ended up doing active valor, which became this massive hit. And then the yeah. dream right after that is we ended up doing a, a movie called need for speed together, which ended up bombing. But but the but the experience was amazing. It, it's the only um, well, it's not the only, but but it was just a remarkable. And the DreamWorks team was just so incredibly supportive. You know, it's getting into this sort of a list run for a minute, right? And like you hear that, oh, that's where the real trouble starts. That's where the execs start coming in and fighting you, and and there's all these other problems, and there's so many people to appeal to, and all this kind of stuff. And with and with DreamWorks, I just found them to be so incredibly welcoming and kind. And you know, they didn't have very many notes, but when they did, they were respectful and but insistent. You know, they want this thing, but they they were very just the way they went about things was just remarkable. Um, it was a it was just a dream experience, and I got to record at the Sony scoring stage there with like an oh, cool. orchestra. I met some of the coolest people um, who I absolutely cherish uh, on that show. But yeah, man, just kept just kept going up for a second. You know, that's that's the that was a good trajectory for a hot second. You know, yeah. It's, and that um, movie, I think you do, I think you do it while you can. Yeah, totally. I think with some of those movies, I don't know what else came out around then, like video game wise. But sometimes you get like those trends of here's this gaming, or almost like when we were you know, like I was I was younger than you, but like our age gap's not that different. But like in the early '90s, or like Street Fighter. And like Mortal Kombat, well, the first one was good. The second one was not good. Yeah. But you're trying to like create a movie based on just like pick like pictures of characters. There's no story already out there, so you're trying to build something. I don't even remember playing those Need for Speed games. There really was a story. I think I they're just like them. racing. I think that's no man. Doing. Yeah, you're just racing. So they were just building yeah. a story, and 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 uh, I, I don't want to overstep, but there was an earlier draft of the script that was. Definitely more video gaming. Oh, uh, really? In that there were like there were like certain gangs of things and stuff like that, and it was it was really it was it was weird. But 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 um, 
but it, 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 it developed over time into the movie it became, which, which wasn't, you know, I think it, I think it is a better, you know, may not be great, but it, it's a better movie than I think it gets credit for, honestly. Yeah. Um, when it, when it came out, this is what was weird. Oh man, this is weird. We were finishing it and we were, li- I think we were literally on the dub stage. We were finishing the mix of it when, uh, Paul Walker died from his oh car crash. He was racing a, 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 a Porsche. And then somewhere in there, and I guess he was, he was racing this car and then it like barreled and caught on fire or something, right? As cars might do when, the, when, when they do that. So in yeah. Need for Speed, there's a scene where somebody's car gets crashed and a barrel rolls and catches on fire. And there was this news segment that there was this news push that sort of like associated those two things as if that like, as if like, uh, the team from Need for Speed like watched the Paul, Paul, uh, Paul Walker crash was like, oh, we should put that in our movie. Like, no, nobody was doing it. We were done. We were done with the movie. You know, like we were, we were literally like fixing the, like finishing, putting the finishing touches on it. Um, and I remember that that created like some sort of weird, like Fast and the Furious versus Need for Speed. Like it was one or the other thing. It was kind of one of these kind of interesting things. So maybe that contributed to it. I mean, I know a lot of people have a different take on like what caused, you know, why it didn't do well, you know. I'm sure your viewers might, there might be comments that be like, cause it sucks. You know, I don't know. You know? <laughs> but then you had Aaron mm. Paul, like when he but was first getting hot. Store. Yeah. Dude, That's all Aaron Paul is a phenomenal actor. Yeah. Just an amazing actor. And I would dude, I was so, I was beyond the moon when I found out he was going to do the lead. Cause I was already like a psychopath for Breaking Bad and like what he was doing on Breaking Bad. My dad and I, which I, like my dad was the one who actually came to me initially really? when he was still alive. And he's like, He's like, I'm watching the show Breaking Bad, and I was like, I was like, yeah, 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 I've heard about it. I'm about to start it. And he said, Aaron Paul is this fantastic actor. He's insane. He's amazing. And so, like back in 07, 08, my dad was talking about Aaron Paul. So when I got wow. the chance to work with him, that was just it was fantastic. And it's crazy that that shows that from that long ago. It is. I think it came out in 07. And then yeah. it ran for whatever it is, six seasons. Yeah, that's about right. Because then I think he finished Breaking Bad, and then literally like the first sort of like thing he was gonna do was he ended up doing it for speed. But um, but yeah, and I met him a couple times, and it's a dreamy dude, you know. Like I got lost <laughs> in his eyes. It happens. That, that cast happens. is good too. Like you got to think, like Rami Malek was he? He didn't hit yet at that point. Dakota Johnson was still pretty young. No, Rami. Did, yeah, Rami. None of those guys hit at the time. And then Imogen yeah. Poots, I think, was the one. I think that was the one they were thinking that would be the breakout. Oh yeah, Imogen. yeah. And then and Kid um, Cudi. I'm not sure what she's up to now. Kid Cudi, yeah. they thought was going to be a big breakout, and he sort of is sort of breaking out, I guess, a little bit now. But he's doing a more oh yeah. He was in Bill and Ted I, Three. I, I think and, I met yeah. him. Was he? Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I need to watch yeah. that. I need to watch Bill and Ted Three. It's my generation, so just yeah. No, it's cool. It's very nostalgic, and for me, I think the coolest thing about that movie uh is the fact that they're still friends in real life i i I think that's my favorite thing not like if somebody gets really famous the other person switches to directing because that's what alex puts together phenomenal documentaries but i just think it's so cool that they're really friends from meeting on that audition in 1986 87 or whatever and they're still that close wild that that's awesome when you can have when you can have that kind of friendship or dynamic that can last through that. I mean, and then if you're working together, the shorthand is unbelievable. Like that's which is also another cool thing about working with siblings, by the way, too, is the shorthand is crazy. In a, in an industry where time is of the essence, 
mm-hmm. like from pre-production through production through post all the way time is of the essence right so if you have anybody in your life you know somebody who you're really close friends with or a brother or something and you can go you know like the thing from the thing you know from back in the you know like <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like oh yeah and then that just created like an entire setup it's not a room full of people having to do storyboard setups and talking you through it or showing you music and how it hit. No, it's like, no, you know the thing with the thing from whenever? Yeah, that. Got it. Yep. Done. And now you've just, like, the amount of time that that, and I, I really do believe that in addition to just feeling safe creatively and all these other things, um, I do believe that's why people go to the same people over. You know, a lot of, oh, a lot of directors yeah. will use the same composer. They'll use, yeah. the, a lot of, they'll use the same DP. They'll use the same editor. And it's because a lot of it is the shorthand so that when you oh God, can you imagine? And an edit with, with, you know, with an editor for the first time versus the eighth time. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, you know, can we just go back to these, uh, you know, to these pieces and just that, 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 and then that, like kind of like before. And they go, oh yeah. Or like, we know when we did the thing. And then now, instead of having to like painfully walk your editor through the cuts you wanted or whatever, right? Or the beats or the, or the pacing. Um, Huge difference, man. And so that, I honestly believe that's why people can also stay friends for longer, too, in this business. People can be friends for 30 years because, in a lot of ways, it's a creative marriage. You know, you'd be yeah. lost without this person, you know, after eight films, you know. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, if you're if you have a great relationship with – if you're a director and you have a great relationship with an editor and that editor retires or passes away or something, I'm sure that your next – you know, you feel a massive void moving forward. At least for a while, like just like you would have, like somebody died in a marriage. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh my god, that I I needed that person. You know what I'm saying? And also, the opposite happens, right? Which is just like, okay, we've done we've done this many movies <laughs> together. It's run its course, and we used to love each other, but now everything feels like it's work, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that now might be time for a divorce, right? And now you have like uh, whatever happened between Sam Raimi and Danny Elfman kind of a situation, you know. Oh yeah, um, the, the first one I thought of was uh, was Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, but no, you're right. Like the, the oh, way these yes, people can yes, have yeah, their, yeah. how can they not? They've made such great movies together. They're like they were the best of friends. How do they not talk anymore? It's like I don't know. Something happened on Groundhog's Day that nobody. Uh, yeah, something can happen, about. man. Yeah, there's a there's a few of those kind of stories out there, and yeah, there, there's you know I think it's just one of those things where you know. Uh, People grow apart, you know, and it's not even necessarily, it can, it can be creatively, but it could also be personally, you mm-hmm. know, how, which, which in our world, it's at least for me, anyway, it's hard to separate my work from my personality or my work from who I am as a person, right? Whether I'm doing music, which is what I'm generally, you know, is what I'm known for, is what I've been doing for 30 years, yeah. um, or whether I'm doing something else creative, you know, it's who I am is in it. Um, so it's hard to not take it personally. So I think um, when people grow apart and there can become disagreements, a lot of those things can start digging in personally. It's not about, you know, you're not talking about changing the layout of a PowerPoint presentation. You're talking yeah. about emoting the scene and and that scene means something to that director. And it probably meant something slightly different to the writer who's probably slightly annoyed with the director. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And then the director's going to, I mean, the director's not going to communicate what that should mean to the composer, but no matter what, the composer is going to probably bring something of himself into that scene too. So, I mean, there's just no way to not do it. You know, if you're, if you're doing a, a scene where, you know, you're scoring a, you know, Kramer versus Kramer to the reckoning, you know, and there's another divorce sequence and you went through a terrible divorce, 
you, how you score that, you know, or your terrible divorce and your own personal experience is going to come across in the music <laughs> in this divorce yeah. scene. It just is. It just is. Um, you know, if you're, you know, and your own personal experiences and trauma and triggers, those are all going to go into the music. Those are all going to go into the words. Those are all going to go into the camera. Um, so when people grow apart or have different ideologies, <laughs> that can happen too, and w- which will change how they want to approach making this project. You know, because they want to say something about this in America today. But everybody else is saying, why the hell would you want to say that? You know, they're saying, like, I don't want to be a part of that. You know, yeah. and so people start growing apart. I don't know specifically with Danny Elvin and Sam Raimi, like, or those kind of things, or, or, or uh, Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, which I didn't even know about that one. I wasn't aware yeah, of that. They just stopped talking. And even, even one from a few years, I think they, uh, his daughter came out and said that Bill visited, but he never talked about it publicly. Bill Murray, but he said he visited uh, Harold at the end. Like they hung out, they because he passed oh, away good. probably in the last good, five good, ten good. years. So they kind of, kind of made up. But even yeah. like more recently was that weird one with uh, Will Farrell and John C. Riley because John C. Riley, uh, Will Farrell wanted to play uh, Jerry Buss in the Lakers HBO series, right? And what's his name? His but Adam McKay uh, produced and wrote it and all that stuff. So he said right. he basically probably just forgot to tell Will or something, or it was too much of a chicken. Sh- I have no idea, but he told them like, all right, fine. Heard that, and, yeah. and then he told John C. Riley, Oh, you have the role. So then Will Farrell and all of them didn't like each other, but I just saw they made up at like Snoop Dogg's birthday party. They were both on stage <laughs> singing boats and hoes for him. But I'm like, it's, it's like, excellent. like you said, like excellent, you said, excellent. you don't really know in some of the instances, but to go back to what you said earlier, it's so true. So many of those guerrilla style filmmakers, like even back then, Hey, we have two weeks to shoot like the Roger Corman's of the world, the Jim Winorski's. They always have the same guys. If you look at the people they hire in front of the camera, behind the camera. Yeah, you're right. That's the only way you could do it. You couldn't, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply do like that shorthand and be done in two weeks. It's impossible. You, you, you can't do it that quickly. And then, and that's the thing is like, and if you have more time, then chances are you're not going to want to spend that time explaining stuff. You're going to want to yeah. spend that time getting more coverage or getting, mm-hmm. getting some, or getting, or going, or going further with specials, right? Like, like, Oh, let's do a special that we're only going to use for this one shot in the scene, you know, as opposed to, you know, just basic coverage. Right. Um, you would want to spend that time to be more creative. You wouldn't want to spend that time explaining the same stuff you're going to be getting anyway. So yeah, you want to go back to those same guys. So like the advice, obviously that I've given composers and I'm trying to think, has anybody else besides composers ever asked for my advice? That probably wouldn't be very smart of them if they did. I think it's only musicians and composers have ever asked my advice. <laughs> and it would be like, it would be like fine. Like, yeah, like the temptation is to like intern or like become a ghostwriter or an assistant to like a, a big net, like a Hans Zimmer or something like that. Right. But I, I really believe the value would be like finding really, really talented directors and writers who are themselves fighting for their space. 
Like they're not big already, you know, like, and then, but you know, and a lot of people's comment on that would be like, well, then some people, you know, end up not doing much or whatever. But I think that there's a lot of value in just doing a lot of work in which somebody cares about all of that work. You know, I think that that could be that that's what's important. Cause I also did a few things that I, I, in retrospect, don't love. Yeah. So I, I have a bunch of those, I have a bunch of those sci-fi channel lifetime hallmarky, you know, uh, you know, uh, it's either, uh, it's either a 20 million year old slug that comes back up to eat people or it's a, or it's a divorcee who is living in a small town and getting a second chance at Christmas or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and those, and honestly, the way I survived on those was I would give myself assignments because the, because the, here's the point I'm trying to make is like they don't care, like like a lot. I mean, maybe some of them do now, and, and if if you're listening, I don't mean you, but there's a <laughs> lot of stuff where it's just like the people making those movies, writing it, directing it, just getting it to the finish line, don't really care about the material. They just need to get it to the finish line, so yeah, it, it's a paycheck, right? And that can be fun if you're a young guy like me because it's like okay, I'm going to do this entire score. I would do it as personal studies because I didn't go to school. So it's like, okay, I'm going to approach this whole score like Rachel Portman. I'm going to do a whole Rachel Portman personal study. And that's what the score is. Because it doesn't matter. It's not going to be like, oh, my God, this Nathan First story uh, from Don't Take My Baby 12. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. nobody cares. So if I do my own little interesting English uh, Rachel Portman score to just study, or and then I'll do, a, I'll do a creature feature. I'll do a Jerry Goldsmith. Thing. Like I'm going to do Jerry Gore. I'm going to be Danny Elfman for this yeah, entire yeah. score. It's not really. It's not really about what I think. It's really about like the fun. It's about the fun of like exploring those ideas. And then what happens is over time, as you start to get into the bigger stuff, you start cherry picking almost like what from those like personal studies that you like, right? And that's how I sort of came up with what I feel like is my sound. And there are people that you know call out little motifs and stuff that I that I borrow you know, from those kind of guys. And I will call myself out immediately. I wear that stuff <laughs> proudly. Yeah. So if I'm doing something, um, as a matter of fact, my mixer, Mark Curry, fantastic, amazing mixer. Um, he refused to score any more, uh, to mixing more of my scores unless I stopped doing a particular James Horner riff that James Horner would constantly do. But I'm a James Horner fan yeah, in a lot yeah, of ways. Too. So I find myself wanting to do that. So, he would do these little things where there's just like, yeah, no, no, There's this little sort of like, it would be in a trumpet or it'd be sometimes in low strings, but you're in a, you're in a, you know, a scene or an action thing. And it's like, no, 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 It's just these little things. So I started stealing it because I like it. Um, you know, same thing with uh, Danny Elfman, you know, he would do these like sort of builds. And, um, anyway, but, 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 so those are the value of those, but I also think I did them too long. You know, so it's like you can come and you can learn who you are, how you want to work your workflow for fast because those things are amazing. They paid me and like, here's, here's some money. Here's the movie. Can you show up on the dub stage in two weeks with 80 minutes of music, please? <laughs> and literally that's pretty much it. So like whatever you wanted to do as a composer at the time, I don't know if they're still doing this, was more or less like as long as it wasn't wrong or inappropriate, like to be like, cool. Like they wouldn't care if you did this versus that to achieve the same vibe emotionally so i would use it as a study um but then what happens is that over time if nobody's pushing you to become more creative you get into this monotony of just like uh, sort of what me and some friends used to call music by the pound you know you're not really thinking about it you don't really care about it you're just getting it done 
Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? And I definitely would say, like, I did that for too long. I did that for way too long. Just doing, like, cruddy. Small, I don't want to say cruddy. I don't want to say cruddy. Lower yeah. scale things that are very a very specific thing for a very specific audience. Um, I did them too long. So, so uh, but yeah, so when you find people, you can get stale that way. And I think that that can be bad in the industry as well. And then if you're doing too much of the same thing, people will really hold it against you. Yeah. When they're looking at your IMDb or whatever, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, like, like I, so, you know, and it's like, so, so if I go to, if I say like, oh, I want to be the composer for Ant-Man, you know, you know most people are going to be like, no. <laughs> Why would we give that to you? You know, um, regardless of what the music might say, you know, I'm not saying my music's worthy of that. Um, but yeah, if that makes any sense. So, no, I know, but that, that's what it should be. It should be like the back of a baseball card like hey let me what are your st- like wh- let, let's hear it and then that's what it is it shouldn't be like looking at what somebody did in their rookie year to see what they're doing now that, that's, that's the one thing i think I a like. lot of that is because yeah what do you say no i just i i just i it's just not fair i think if somebody can direct a movie that is on a sci-fi channel movie but if somebody visually looks at it like a producer or somebody and goes, I want this guy to direct this next movie, then they go to the studio and it's like, oh, but this guy doesn't, you know, it looks good, but people are going to know that he worked on, you know, and I think that's, I don't know. It's yeah. ridiculous. I, it's, it's crazy, man. The, the, what was crazy when I was young, you know what I used to get? I used to get all the time. I would get, I would be able, I was able to do, uh, when I was really young and it actually got me a little bit of attention, you know, thank God, uh, was I was one of the earlier guys who was able to like produce a mock-up without an orchestra that kind of sounded like an orchestra. It never, it never yeah. really sounds exactly like an orchestra, but I was one of the first guys that was able to, Oh yeah. I was called into a couple of movies to help some other composers like, Hey, how are you achieving those strings or whatever? You know, that's very, very early. It's not anything you couldn't do now, you know, on your own like your average composer. But at the time we're talking about 2001, you know, and I'd be called in to help those guys out. Um, I was going somewhere with this, but now I lost it. <laughs> Total brain fart. It was good though. Uh, oh, I know what it was. Fucking hell. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I don't know about cursing. Are we allowed to oh, curse no, you're good. Show? You're good. Yeah, totally. All right. Sorry, man. Um, <laughs> so it's that kind of a thing where it's like, you. Be, I would produce these like massive things that sounded like, sounded somewhat like an 80 piece orchestra. Right. And people would say, yeah, that sounds really good, but can you handle a live orchestra? And it's like, now I think people understand. But at the time in 2002, it's like, I couldn't explain it. It's like, no, man, that, that shit's easier. That's way easier than doing yeah. a mock-up. Because if you need something to change, you take your pencil and you go like this. And you say, hey, do that thing now. And they'll do yeah. that thing. If I'm, doing it, if I'm doing it alone, it takes me an hour to find a way to make something. Cause like, so trust me, I'll tell you right now. If, you, if, if somebody who's like intimately trying to make a mini mock-up, what they call a mini mock-up, you know, sample mock-up for, uh, you know, basically doing a, doing a orchestral piece of music, but only in the computer, you know, you're pulling up your own clarinet, then you're pulling up your own bassoon, then you're pulling up your own first violin. It's a lot of tracks. It's a lot of tracks. Each, yeah. A lot of composers like myself are templates for a typical movie score. The templates start like just like, oh, I just want to see what I want to start with. And you click it open. You're looking at like 600 tracks. That's insane. 700 tracks. I know some guys, like some of the big, big names, they, because they have like teams of people keeping the whole thing. They, they keep the enterprise ship running. You know, they have their templates starting at 1,500 tracks. They have, you know, and they're, and they're disabled and then hidden, but it's like, oh, I need to go to my 
obscure Chinese lithophone. They already have it loaded. They just they just search it, pull it up, and then re-enable it. They do all these things, you know. But my template, I always kept pretty lean at around 500 tracks. And then you have other, like, reverbs and all these other things to sort of keep that world going and to keep that space going, which changes depending on what the movie is, too, right? Um, which is now with samples, it's a lot easier to do. Any, you can achieve pretty much anything by yourself in the studio, which is why big orchestras have, have you know, it's become a problem lately. There's not as many, you know, a lot of the big recording studios have closed down. So there's not nearly as many places in, like, Los Angeles, as instance, to record a live orchestra for a score. Oh, wow. Uh, as there used to be, not even close. Most of them have shut down um, because there's just nobody to fill the room. Um, and the studios like Paramount, all that, they, they see, all they see is square footage not being used, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's what it is. They bulldoze it, you know, which women, you know, it's, it, you can have a chicken and egg conversation, but that also goes hand in hand with as internet stuff, as the internet speed became faster, you used to be able to record, you can record, uh, remotely like to Europe. So I could sit in the studio right now and book a session with Prague and supervise that session from sitting in my little office here. Yeah, you know what right. I mean? So as that became more possible, then the studio starts shutting down all the music stuff here. So um, it we just made it more and more like you had to be able to do it yourself in the studio, you know? So, but yeah, I used to get a very, that early question is no more. I'm just like, well, oh, oh you can, you sure you can produce the music in your room, but could you handle it with live people? It's like, yeah, fool. That's easier. <laughs> yeah, you know, people don't get it. So the same thing. So the same thing you can blow out to directors. It's like I have a lot of respect for directors who are told, "Hey, you're going to make a science fiction creature feature with X amount of effect shots, and you've got 18 days, and you're doing it for one million dollars." Well, you know, it's like, and they're most directors are not going to want to like blindly walk through it. They're going to want to make it as good as they can possibly get. So that requires like the time, the energy, expertise, you know, stagecraft. Um, so, so yeah, man, it's, it, that's always been a, a confusing thing to me of just like, why, why they don't, uh, why lower budget stuff, why it's hard to break yeah. through. No, I know. You know, cause, no, cause well, I, I would think I, to me, it's like swinging in the dugout with three bats. It's like, it's, it's easier to swing with one bat. Yeah. It's easier. You know, when, when, <laughs> if, if you say, Hey, I I really need fifty thousand more dollars for for these percussion players, and I want the best in the world. And the other line of the phone says, "Sure, no problem." What day would you like? That's easier. That's yeah, not I harder. Know. That's easier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so process wise, obviously, when you're working with people that you have a relationship with, it's probably easier. Uh, just like the going back and forth. But like when you work with like a first time director and you're doing the score for the movie, what are some like like, what is the conversation? Are you watching the movie that they give you and writing down, hey, this scene won? Uh, like, how does that work? Like, the back and forth of it. Well, it, that's what's crazy about movies. And it's like, people will, so another advice I'll get asked is like, I'll get asked a lot of questions about hierarchy. You know, like, who do you listen to more than this? You know, and just like what you're asking, that can often change from movie to movie. And it can be very disorienting to suss out. You know what I mean? So yeah. the only consistent thing I would do, the only consistent thing I would do is, is like, okay, whatever is available to me, a script, a rough cut of the movie, you know, if you, if the director's not comfortable showing a rough cut yet, because if it's that early, uh, I'll ask to come into the edit bay and like watch this, watch the two or three scenes that they think, you know, 
are the heart of the movie and that are close to done. Like anything I can watch, I, I want to, so that we can have a conversation on a level playing field. From that point, it changes constantly. So I've had directors be all but completely absent, like not even part of the process um, because they're too, they're either too intimidated or they don't care. Or they, they don't know what to ask for. And essentially the editor has led it, has led a spotting session or, or led a conversation. Um, but often what will happen is after I watch the movie, I'll try to talk to whoever seems to be in charge and most passionate. So, so you'll have the director who may be in charge, but he may be kind con- may be watching him constantly deferring to his producer yeah. who really loves movie scores, you know, who really, you know, okay, well then I'm going to start zeroing in on what the producer is saying, because that seems to be where the director is leaning, you know, you know, or, it's not. The director has a very strong image of what he wants. Um, but after watching it, I'll just ask, what do they want to achieve? You know, now, if I'm doing one of these kind of creature features, Slug wakes up after 20 million years yeah. of people, then I don't really need to ask that question. Right? <laughs> like, like yeah. we know what we're trying to achieve. It's a popcorn. We know what we're trying to do. But if we're trying to do anything else, even, even, you know, even a well-crafted, like, action or horror film, which is a genre movie, and theoretically should only, you know, theoretically on its face has its obvious goals, right? But a lot of times you'll have a director or a producer or whoever saying, to me, this is really a conversation about gun control. Or this is really a conversation, yeah. you know, like, and, 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 it, and it may not even have a gun in. Like, who knows? You know, it could be like, whoa, I don't know where you got that. Okay. Okay. So, but then at least that helps you go through because at the end of the day, they're approving everything, right? So it can't, you're not writing a score for your own satisfaction. You're writing a score. It's a collective effort, just like a movie is. And, you know, it's always a collective effort. Um, so you have people you have to, who have to agree with that choice. And uh, brain farted again. No, <laughs> yeah. no, I was just wondering because I you talked about, like, I, obviously, like, working with DreamWorks, you said that it was, like, you know, quote, unquote, dream to work with them because it was, like, an easy back and forth. I could find, you know, if there's too many cooks – that's why it's great to have a relationship when you're doing the scores and then they're listening to it with the scene and seeing how it is. And then the, just the back and forth, it's because it's, music is so important to a scene. Obviously dialogue is, but dialogue shot on the set, you know, and the movie is already done and the, the music part, is yeah. for the most part. Yeah. So like, it, I, I always say like, I only talked to one other composer ever. I talked to Peter Bernstein. So Obviously, his dad, okay. his dad, he had a pretty good uh, – he didn't want to do it. He wanted to be a rock and roller, but then he just got to the point that he just wasn't getting to the point that he wanted to. Even though he told me some That's of the fine. bands that he opened up for, they were really cool. And here's like a really cool story that uh, I'm, I'm sure maybe you never heard of, but he went to school with Peter Landis. Uh, Peter sorry, Bernstein right? did. So – so John or John Landis. So John Landis was went to high school. There was a bunch of other famous people. Right. When his, when his dad, when John Landis was doing animal house, he was really young, but since he used to hang over at the house with Peter and he talked to Elmer a bunch, he said to, was a universal, right? That did animal house or. Yeah, that's universal. Yeah, exactly. So he pulled a card out during a meeting with universal. He said, well, you know what? I'm going to have uh Elmer Bernstein's going to score the movie. So they're like, bullshit. So they called the house and Elmer picks up and he says, 
uh, yeah, I, I would score the movie. And it was like this one of those moments, because I don't know if John would have maybe, he might have got the movie anyway. Maybe it was like a moot point to, in the story. But he goes, yeah. So from then on, his dad for like, I think he said eight years, his dad got over doing comedy movies. Because he was doing like right. the, the Great Escape, but he did like if you look at his IMDb, there's like a turn at Animal House that it's all comedies, stripes, oh, that's like, really and Ghostbusters. But yeah, just because uh, he was buddies with him and uh, he got him to say yes to it, and then his career kind of took this turn that he's doing every big comedy for like eight, ten years. But, but yeah, yeah, but of course, and all of those are sprouts of Animal House. They're all. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, like I like you can, you can almost you can almost describe those movies as oh that's a you know those those eighties you know mm-hmm. you know goofy like Porky's or any of these other things. it's a post animal those are post animal house comics, oh dude for sure. it changed every animal house oh, yeah. really changed everything and and your dad's role in that movie to go off on a tangent uh, is is phenomenal Please, because yeah. he was that guy that everybody if you watch all those movies after Animal House there is a guy that is a flounder type character. It's wild that oh, yeah. it, it changed. It really changed everything. My dad's I'll show this one. My dad's got a man. My dad had a great story about, about just how brutal Hollywood is sometimes. Right. His story is, is that he went in one time and read for a part. Right. And on the sides, you know, the sides are like a little piece of the script you get mm-hmm. when you go into audition. And the, it was described as a Stephen first type. Okay. <laughs> That's amazing. Not kidding. He, from his, according to him, it's literally written on the sides, Stephen First type on it. He's reading for it. He didn't get it. <laughs> we ended up going with someone else. But yeah, that's, so like basically that character that, that I mean, I, I'm, I haven't read the script on the page. We have copies of it, but, but I haven't read the script yeah, on the page. But I'm, but I'm assuming, you know, his character's on the page a lot. But obviously what, what my dad was able to sort of like massage out of that and bring to life out of that. Yeah, created its own sort of lovable naive. You needed a lovable naive character, preferably fat, preferably overweight, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Not always, not always, but eighty percent of the time needed to be overweight, but also naive and lovable, right? And that became this this whole archetype, which was really funny. Is like because well, he's not well, he was not like that. There was a part of him that kind of was. So like, kind of like what I was saying before. It's like no matter what you do who you are goes into the, goes into the process. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. there's absolutely parts of him. Yeah. Just growing up with him that are absolutely, that's sort of like, you know, you guys playing cards, you know, like there's so there's some <laughs> sort of like, it's like, there's there, that, that's so it's like, so it's when I'm watching those, those movies, especially like an animal house, I'm not, it's not wholly watching a character. There is parts of there. It's like, Oh, that's dead. That's like, dead, oh, that's yeah. dead. You know? There's lots of death. So that's actually really cool too. It's like after, after, if you know, if you have a parent who, you know, after they die and if you're lucky enough that they were a sensation for a decade, you know, or whatever, you know, you can literally just go on YouTube and it's your own private reel, you know, it's amazing. And it's own. No, it, it is really cool was, to see that. Yeah. To the weird one was when I went to a, I went to a urinal once and there was a picture of him uh. at the restaurant I was at. Wasn't ready. Wasn't ready. And this is maybe a couple of years ago. And I'm like, Whoa, oh, okay. Hey, Dad, what's up, man? What just is weird? It's like, I'll chase a still, a still from Animal House. The still from Animal House that they were just <laughs> they were just putting in the. I guess they were putting it in the. It was in like one of these gastro pub places in L.A. You know what I mean? And it's just sort of like I guess they were going for like to give that vibe, that energy. So they had taken like stills from the movie and put it up all over the bathroom. 
And like right over the urinal, I walk up to it's like, all right, sweet. You know, okay, cool. Oh, but yeah, man, it's, it's, it, 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 he created a whole character. And then, and then I, that was his career. That's what's crazy. It's just like he came out here in like his early 20s and just landed that movie and then literally dined out on that, like became versions of that role. Yeah. You know, for the next 15 years, you know, something like that. And so your mom's it's, it's in the crazy. movie. It's really awesome. She is. Which is great. Yeah, she's in one shot. Yeah. Theoretically, I am actually too, because as they say, she was pregnant with me in that shot. Really? Oh, okay, so, cool. So you're in the yeah, Marvel store. Yeah, they, <laughs> I'm in the Marvel store. Yeah, that's me. I'm I'm the fetus. I'm fetus number one. In, so uh, you uh, you know you know another baby in the movie too is uh, uh, Eliza Roberts now, but she was supposed to have a bigger role, but she got pregnant. She was friends with John Landis. So here, her kid, I forget his name. He's a guitar player. But she went to a role that she was like sitting for most of the movie. Oh, that's so interesting. I don't know her. Yeah. That's fascinating. She's married, right, so she's I'm married. not the only one. I didn't realize I had competition. Yeah. She's married to Eric Roberts now, but her parents were like writers in Hollywood. So she went to high school with John Landis and Peter Bernstein. So. And she was in his first movie, Schlock. That's funny. So yeah, so there's like this oh weird God. connection with it. But yeah, she's uh, yeah, she's like sitting down at the reception when they go to pick up the girls at the at the fraternity. So yeah, wow, man. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> I know exactly what scene you're talking about. Yeah, yeah at the sorority. Yeah, she's area. sitting down, and yeah. yeah, that's her. She was supposed to be. That's I don't know right. which role she was supposed to have of the that's two, really funny three girls, but uh. No, it's crazy to think about how one movie can really change. I'm sure for all the other genres, like maybe Halloween for slasher films, but definitely comedy. Oh, yeah. That changed it all. And your dad's, uh, you know, just so many of the lines of his movie. But that's cool that you say that that ble- that that was him bleeding onto the screen like the hello. Or- oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. yeah. yeah we, we, my brother and I still do that, by the way. We still, yeah. still <laughs> randomly say hello to each other. Hello. We like yeah. this. We can. We can. We have this ability to pitch into his voice if we want to. That's it's, awesome. Uh, it's funny. Dream yeah, Team. He, I was. I was telling Griff one of the movies that I think is super underrated. I have no idea why because it is four heavyweights of comedy in one movie. Is Dream Team. Oh yeah. Every person in that movie, like Christopher Lloyd's character in that movie, is unreal because the way he acts like the doctor <laughs> for. 98% of the movie. It is so good. I love it. It's amazing. It's amazing. And on the day, it was so interesting too, because obviously I was a huge fan of Back oh, to the Future. Like, yeah, that's a true. Freak. I was, we, both my brother and I were there for a lot of the filming. <laughs> and uh, he was just so, he, when I saw him, he just, he was so different and so odd. And I didn't, I didn't understand. I never spoke with him, but yeah. I would be, I would see him on the set and just, I didn't quite understand it. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I shot that up in Toronto and that was a really cool experience to just sit there and just like, we would get to sit there behind video village, you know, where they're shooting with the director in that area. That's you awesome. Know. You don't, you don't, you, when you're that age, you don't realize what a privilege that can, you know, that is. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're going to crash the ambulance into the cop car now. Ready everybody. You know, like that was cool. So they have this, they have one good sort of car wreck stunt in that movie. And uh, and I was so excited because I got to sit there and watch that you know behind the camera. I don't know if Griff was there, but I was there. But that's pretty cool. Yeah. Anything like and Michael like... Keaton was really great too. Oh, yeah, nice. Because again, I was I, I had seen Batman and I was like, holy cow, that's like I had gone online <laughs> after watching Batman. So the fact that it was him 
And every now and then he would just sort of walk by and goof off with us, like punch us in the old arm or something like that. Um, I think, I think just on, on, I think my dad had said like, Oh, he loves, he loves the Batman movie. Or he loves Batman. <laughs> or no, it hadn't come out yet. Or he had just come out or he's about to do it or something like that. But I had the timing makes that, sense. Like, oh, yeah. like, it's very like, it's like, Oh, it's very, it's very like interesting to me. So, um, but, uh, but uh, I remember just staring at Michael Keaton, just being like, you know, sort of really studying. But he was really nice. Everybody was really nice. It was an amazing, it was an amazing experience to just That's be cool. for all those things. Yeah, yeah. Especially being a kid, you yeah, get exposed man. to it and you can be like, hey, this is something I might want to be involved with. But especially you guys, it's like, oh, it's a, yeah. it was we a were, must. We were, <laughs> we were intimately, oh, we were intimately aware of, of yeah. show business and Making movies and all that. I mean, very early on, one of, the, one, of, one of our first memories is in one of our houses, we we made an interactive haunted house and then tried to charge neighborhood kids for it. Like as a, <laughs> nice. as a, as a theater sort of thing and created different elements, you know, to, to, you know, that would get scarier as you went further along. We were very, very young at the time. So it's like we, and then there was another time we, we had a playhouse that we ruined trying to do our own stunt show. <laughs> so we had actually, we actually, it was a two-story playhouse that we that that we rigged by sawing it almost in half, and then Griff would jump out the end of it while the rest of it collapsed. You know that kind of stuff. So we were doing we were trying to find ways to stage stuff from very early on, and we were very acutely aware of the concept of um, creating creating a show or a concept that looks like we're doing something that we're not. And what is it? And what does that mean? You know that kind of thing. It's like, oh, let's make it look like we're doing it. So we were we were trying to put on shows very early on, man. Yeah. And so we were very aware of that. Absolutely learned. Yeah, when you're around that stuff, you can't help but learn it. You know. Yeah. One movie I have to ask you about because obviously you have a ton. It's not like I ever. Whenever I talk to people, we go through everything. But I don't know why I've always been obsessed with those movies. But those Twelve Rounds movies, and I watched the one oh. that you did. <laughs> The Randy Orton one, because that's what WWF does. Oh it seems uh, they always do the first movie is Cena, and then the second one is like Orton, or then they do like the Miz, like in the they made like a bunch of those Marine movies. But like that one, Randy Orton, it's like obviously he probably makes a ton of money from wrestling because he's still doing it. But I'm like, this guy, yeah, not, he's not do. bad, and they're cool. I the concept no, of the movies bad. is such an '80s vibe. Like I could see a movie with like Stallone or yeah, Arnold, you know. It's completely unapologetic. You know what, yeah. what I now call? Uh, I tend to call them Rambro movies. Yeah, you know, they're, they're just they're they're, they're Rambros. You know, um, and Rambro, Rambros are great. Uh, Rambro movies are great. Um, they're a very specific thing. And it's absolutely an homage to the sort of super cop superhero of the eighties. You know, the super justice guy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, holding you know double machine guns. You know, shooting everybody down. <laughs> it's always an homage to that. It was a lot of fun. That one, that one was one of those ones that went really fast. I think yeah. I did that score in three weeks. Oh, nice. You know, it was, it was. I don't even think I was on the dub stage for that. They were um, WWE was a very. Um, I don't want to say it wasn't a negative experience, but it was just it was not quite the DreamWorksy. It didn't feel inclusive, and it was more about just. Uh, you know, do this. You know, we want, we want your music. Just do this. Yeah, you know, do the very, thing. Uh, yeah. Do the thing. Do you know that thing? That's good. Do, you know, <laughs> like in th- this this thing I'm doing here. It's a lot of that. Yeah, it's, a lot of, it's like like and there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of that in Hollywood in general. By the way, it's like somebody yeah. will be telling you that you're the most that you're amazing and they love you, but somehow the face isn't. It's like <laughs> we really love what you. We really we really love what you do. Yeah. 
really yeah. like what you do. It's yeah. very good. But it's like, and it's like, is it? Is it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so there's a little bit of that. So, uh, but yeah, that was one of those ones. Like I, I literally wrote the score. I don't think I got a single note. It was just, it was in and out. It was, a, but I had a lot of fun doing it. I had a lot of fun doing that one. That was a really good one. Yeah. Really and another, I really enjoyed another the director. Infamous one that, that you work on was the cousin Eddie's, uh, Island. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, God bless. Uh, uh, rest in peace, Maddie Simmons. Uh, he was the producer of Animal. He one of the producers of Animal House. Really? That's and, really cool uh, that you got to yeah, work with him. I did, and that's how that's, that's how I got. That's how he became aware of me, and I got that job. He was a very interesting guy, a uh, very funny guy in, in, in his own way. Um, but the way he approached music was very sort of like uh, he. That's a great example. I had no interactions with that director. At all, not one. I don't even know who the director is for that moment. I'm not sure, but but that, that can sometimes be the case for TV, right? So TV, sometimes oh, TV definitely for production, yeah. and he's and he's out. But then for that's not always the case for TV movies, though. Like sometimes it's the director, you know, because now it's kind of like treated a little bit more like a movie. Uh, but no, but in this case, it was Maddie. It was it was the director. It was the producer, Maddie, and it was just very so. You know, some of this comes up. You know, probably just a little fiddle. Just do a little fiddle or something here. Okay, we'll do a little fiddle. So, so I'm not going to get any notes that way. But basically, <laughs> yeah. his one thing that was very important to him was that every single piece of music had to have a homage to a Christmas carol of some sort. So there was not a piece of music that was supposed to be written that didn't have some sort of counter motif from jingle bells coming into it at some point. Yeah. Or, you know, it had to. It had to be. And of course, and of course, because of the situation, they have to be public domain. So now it's like, so like I have a songbook of public domain <laughs> Christmas songs. And I'm just sort of going through them and trying to build cues off of them. But that was that was that was my main task for that movie was make sure that the entire score uh, has Christmas carols weaving through <laughs> the score. But keep it, but keep it like try to keep it like a big adventure. You know, in the sort of in, in the sort of vein of what the vacation movies had done, where it was like orchestral, but it was silly but then sometimes you know the, well the very early vacation movies kind of almost started doing like that 80s disco thing sometimes I think. yeah yeah the car's going and, you know this sort of like that kind of stuff but 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 it, it, over time it went away from that one to more of that sort of like grand orchestral stuff so um but yeah man that was that was the that was the goal that was the goal. It was a, it's a that was a and very interesting young, movie. It was and you were young weird. at that time. Obviously, you have your dad to lean on and other people, but that you're like 25 getting or 24 getting like 20, kind of like 24, odd, yeah. Like odd no, not an odd note, but it's like, okay, do this. Oh, yeah. You gotta add this. And so it's gotta be like it's mm-hmm. that's difficult. Yeah, and didn't go to school, by the way. So yeah, there's I know. no music there's no music theory training. There's no there's just whatever I did. Uh, whatever I was capable of doing. So um, there was definitely a little bit like, okay, you know, you know. so it was just about, uh, yeah, man, that's, that's what it was. I was 24 and it was, it really just comes down to, you know, what you learn growing up in this business is, well, one thing my dad taught me at least, uh, probably both of us is that it, it's the concept of, especially in the world of show, of show business and stagecraft and all these other things. It's like if, if anybody else, if another human being, if another person who's, who quantifies as a human being, is capable of doing it, then how hard can it possibly be, right? So, so if you start everything from that point, it's like, okay, well, I don't really know what I'm doing, and now I got to weave in traditional Christmas carols into an orchestral film score 
that gets delivered in five to six weeks, fully produced, without a live orchestra or anything like that. Um, yes, I can do that. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and then when you hang up the phone, you go like, God, how the hell am I going to do that? <laughs> uh, but you just do it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But you don't say it on the phone. You just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. No worries. And then you figure it out, you know, and chances are you'll figure it out, which is, which is what I did is that, you know, I don't think I won any awards that year for that. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> or any year, uh, but, uh, but, um, yeah, man, it was, it, it was a lot of fun. And that kind of stuff was always a very valuable education. And at 24, I was just beside myself thrilled to get that job. Yeah. Absolutely thrilled. Uh, and nothing short of it. And, uh, and I'm, to this day, I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, and that was when, you know, that was a different budget level too. Like, you know, the, the budget for those things is not what they would do if they were making that movie now. Oh, it yeah. would be made for a fraction of that now, you know? Um, so I'm grateful for having gotten to do it at the time I did it, you know? Yeah. And I think when it, when it, it comes to, sc- when it comes to schooling, I think, especially when it, in this, I'm sure there's so many people that are in Hollywood that, you know, in front or behind the camera. I just always think when it comes to like creative things, if you go to school and somebody's teaching you and I don't know, 20 people how to do a certain thing, obviously there's things you could take from it, but when you're learning on your own, you're learning at your pace and putting your like fingerprint on it. It's like, right. Know, like if somebody it, like Stadler is one of the famous acting schools, right? Stadler or, Statler. Statler, I don't, I don't know them. One of those. I'm not so I'm saying like they, they have 12 people in a class at a time. All those people are, are learning to cry the same way, do things the same way. So it's good to see people yes. have their own, you know, you're putting your own different touch. The way you look at it is going to be different than the people that went to the same music class. And I think that's something that is important. I know obviously it worked out for yeah, you. Like, no, maybe I, the, I agree. You know, well, it didn't, it didn't. I mean, I'm sure I have, I mean, I'm sure I know I have, you know, there's, there's going to be, there's going to be potholes in my knowledge and education, but what's good is, is that, um, that's where, especially if you have the time and budget to like work with live musicians or all these other people, that's where you can rely on what their experience is. Like, this is what I'm just like a director, right? Like yeah. this is what I'm looking to achieve. He, a director, and that's, that's actually a big difference that I find that makes, uh, a composing a very underappreciated thing is, is that, I see it as like a composer literally has to write the script, direct the movie, produce the movie, edit it, deliver it. Like the the same idea. We have to produce mm-hmm. a concept from beginning to end and deliver that thing on our, we have to, we really need to be able to do that completely on our own. We need to be able to orchestrate, compose, produce in the studio. Uh, you know, every little aspect of the process we sh- we now need to know. Back in the day, you could have multiple people doing those things, um, but it's a very underappreciated uh, appreciated thing to do that. Um, oh, yeah. I, there was a point where I was rolling it back. I'm losing it again. But but there, <laughs> somebody watching will understand the point I was trying to make. But 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 it can be very. It could be. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's it could be a lot of. It's a lot of work as a composer to do all this. Yeah. Things. Yeah. No, and I know, I know, I know. Like you said, like there might be some th- like potholes in knowledge from not like those music theory and yes. everything. But I think no, but I think it, I, that's I, what it was. Yeah, but my yeah. Uh, the ideas become more original that way, and you yeah. adjust them, and you and you and you you can you know look. There's an old jazz. There's an old jazz musician joke 
which is just that, which is, you know, somebody, if they're in auditioning or something, somebody will say to them, can you read? You know, can you read music? And the response, the, the correct response is not enough to hurt my playing. That's the, that's the correct response. It's like, yes, but, right? Yes, but I don't read so well that I don't know how to play my instrument. Um, that's really the joke. And I, I do believe in the same thing as composing. If you only have this like super traditional education and you're, everything you know is based off of, I don't know, like Rimsky Korsakoff principles of orchestration from the 1700s or something like that, you know, these kind of things. And it's extremely formal. Um, I think that gives you more tools to work with for sure. And and makes you more educated and able to pull and extends your language 100%. But it can also create a limitation because basically if all these other things which do exist, you know, surely that's all there is, right? Surely not one more thing can be uh, invented or created, which of course is not true. Everything could be invented and created. Um, And I just think, I think actually to a certain extent, a, Either lack of edu- not a lack of education, but it, but but an ability to segregate that from your own ideas, will lead to better quality work. Whether it's making a movie as a whole, or writing a score, or writing a you know an orchestral piece, or or a pop record, yeah. You know, um, Rick Rubin says great things on that. You know, Rick Rubin is all about. Um, which God bless him, crazy guy. I don't know if you know who Rick Rubin is. No, really, I should really know famous. him. For record what? producer. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Every, okay. Literally everything. Okay. Literally everything goes. Yeah, to, yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen a photo of the guy with shoes on. He goes to the studio bare. He looks like he's homeless, really? but he just has this great. He has this great, interesting ethic. That's, that's that. I wouldn't know how to describe it. Whether it's a work ethic or a spiritual ethic, he might argue that they're both. I don't know, but that sort of thing of just like everything you do is a uh, is an offering to God, as it were. Right? Like you always want to work. In a very pure form, so um, I try to follow those uh, those things as well, which doesn't always require uh, a traditional background. Yeah. You know, I would say I would I would argue the same thing of directors. You know, like uh, would Hitchcock have come up with all the stuff he came up with if he? I don't know what his upbringing is. I, maybe he is purpose. You know, very maybe he went to a film school, but I doubt it. Um, I don't know. Um, but I think I think uh, ignorance can lead to invention. No, one hundred percent. So Nathan, yeah. this was so much fun. One question I have for you, and I didn't ask Peter this, and it's a question that I don't know why it always like. Obviously, everybody has to audition in front of the camera, behind the camera. But for some reason, I never thought. I, I talked to a director and I asked him about like, I he brought up a story about auditioning to direct a movie. I don't know why in my head I always thought it was like. Hey, I'm producer Bob. Uh, I love you directed blank. We want you to direct this next movie. I never thought of a director going right. in and being like, oh, here is what I would make the movie look like. I don't know why I never thought of that, but I'm sure composers do I the same I, thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you got it right on directors. I think I think a producer calls a director and says, hey, I really loved what you did. And I'm thinking about you for this next thing. Yeah. So, like, basically, you were right the producer did see something of that director's and then called him. But then what he called him for was, I'd like you to audition. Yeah. You know I just never saying? thought of the audition Same process. I never like oh, it's br- put that it, it, into it my be, mind. It could be challenging. Yeah. But oh, for you, for sure. But and, so how does that work valid, for composers? For sure. So these days it's what I call the bake off. So we basically go into a bake off. So they'll, they'll usually try to narrow. I mean, there are some people who are, I personally find it to be not as respectful to like do this like cattle call where you're going to do this. I think some people do it. I think most don't. 
which is that they tend to like, you'll send in demos um, or you'll send them, you know, a, a, a link that has all your music in it. Um, one of the popular ones is a site called Real Crafter. So you can like build it and somebody can come and click on it, listen to this piece of music, that piece of music, whatever it is. From that and or your credits, like they know you from this show, right? They'll call you and say, um, hey, we think you might be right for this thing, you know? Um, so here's what we're going to do. You and like three other people are going to get this one scene. We're going to give you a week to score it. And then you got to send it back to us. So, so they'll send you, and sometimes it's not completed. If it's live action, obviously it's an assembly, but often if it's an animation, it could be the storyboards or a yeah. grayscale animatic. You know, it could be very, very far away from the final. Um, and then you'll get like a quick time video. And then sometimes they won't even give you instruction on like where to start, where to stop. They'll just say, Hey, let's see what you do. So then you're given, and you're given this like say 10 minute sequence. And so the overzealous composer might be like, you know, the young guy might be like, Oh, I should score this whole 10 minutes front to back. But that may not, they may be actually kind of trying to see what your instincts are to come in and out. Right. Um, Cause like you were saying, like you were saying earlier, a movie is so defined by, can be so defined by its music as far as like, the music can really add a signature to what that movie is. Mm-hmm. But a movie is also defined by the music it's not doing, right? Like yep. when it's not playing a cue. Um, so they want to see that too, I'm sure. They want to see what your sensibility is. But you'll just get it and you'll literally score it with the 600 tracks in your in Pro Tools or Cubase or whatever yeah. program you're using. And sometimes they don't even give you direction as far as instruments. Sometimes they won't say, we want this to be a solo guitar score versus a big orchestra. They just want to see what you're going to do. And if they've called you and said, hey, we love we love what you did on Bionicle, or we yeah. love what you did on Active Valley, it's like, then I can go like, okay, well, I know that's the general vibe that they're probably trying to look for, right? You get the video sometimes a little bit more sense. Oh, of course, that's what they want, right? But then you're going to sit there and score it for, you know, whatever, a week, sometimes two weeks, sometimes longer, and then you'll send it in. And then sometimes... They'll narrow it down and they give you a different scene, and now it's between you and one other person. So literally, so by the time you've gotten the job, you've scored two or three scenes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like at least part of the job is done, right? You know, um, but no, that's actually how they choose composers a lot. No, wow. Is is they they you know they they do they do the bake off. Um, I understand it, and it's been going on for a long time. I mean, that's how that's actually how I got the Bionicle job when I was twenty. Oh, really? It was between me and one other guy. Another Nathan, another, another Nathan. And, um, and, and I happened to get it, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you know, I'm sure, like, I, I'm very reluctant to say that my music was objectively better. You know, uh, it may have fit more what they were looking for, but also it could have been any number of things. And it could have, you know, it could have been any number of reasons why somebody would get a job over another thing as far as tone or whatever else. So, um, but yeah, that's the process now. You just audition, you'll get sent to scene. Sometimes after that, or sometimes before and or after that, you might go in for a meeting or a Zoom call and like, you know, just have a conversation, you know, because they also, a lot of times they also want to vibe you, right? They want to know that if they have to be stuck on a dub stage with you for 12 hours a day or have long conversations that you're like a decent human being to want to be around for for that that amount of time, right? So it's like, okay, they're cool. They're not weird. They're not, you know, anything else. Um... So yeah, it can be it could be quite a process to sort of land the job for sure. That's a good um, way for them to yeah, if they really don't it. know what if, if they really don't know what they want, that's like one of those like cop outs. They get ha- go out to five people and they're like, shit, you know what? That one really sounds really good. We weren't even thinking about that. 
Well, well, without naming names, uh, I bet I that's had that experience before. I, mean, like I bet we're, we're basically in both directions, right? But basically, what they're doing is is now they're getting a crowdsourced think tank mm-hmm. of what the score should be for free, which is a part of that. So, so what started out as an earnest audition process has, by some, been sort of hijacked into this sort of like, oh, you know what? Since we don't want to do the thing of where we go through scores or go through music and put it in the edit bay and see what we like. Let's just start crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. We're going to say we're putting out the job, and we're just going to get all these guys to write a bunch of music. And then, you know, they may or may not pick the composer from that. I don't know. You know, <laughs> it's really interesting. It's an interesting thing. So I don't know what that looks like going forward. Um, you know, of course, and there's also the conversation of AI, too. You yeah. know, at what point will that become? Because I'm sure if you feed it a, an AI model, every amazing score that's ever been produced over the last 70 years and then asked it to to kick out something, it could kick out something. Yeah. You know, would it win an Academy Award? Probably not, but it might get through you. Get, it would get you through some B movies probably. Yeah, right? no, it could be so something that, for... So that'll change. Yeah. Yeah, that'll change. Over, and composers don't have a union. Oh, that's what I was going to ask like you. That. Really? Ah, shit. Mm-mm. We have no union. And from what I understand, they had tried back in the 70s a couple times. It didn't take... So yeah, so we actually obviously we're we're experiencing all the same things that the writers and the actors have been saying, of just like every, since everything went to streaming, the the residuals, the royalties have just come to nothing, right? Like, yeah. like drop exponentially. Um, but there's no union for composers, so then that becomes a problem. So, that, so the unfortunate thing there is, like, I could see where for um, you know obviously not for massive things, you'll still you'll still need artisan work for that. But some of the lower stuff, some of the stuff where, where guys, when they're young, they can cut the, you know, when people are when they're young, they can cut their teeth on. Like, I'm going to do this silly little creature, whatever it is. Pretty soon, I think you might be able to, you know, some, they'll, they'll start sort of creating AI cues out of that, you know, sort of AI library cues. Yeah. So it's like, so I'm not sure what that'll look like. That'll be an interesting thing. And then will there be a composer that supervises that or not? Like, it'll be, so then what is the role of a composer going in the future will be an interesting conversation. Yeah, no, that is interesting. And it's terrible that they don't give you guys money because I know in acting, the old rule was because I helped that, uh, this actor, Larry Hankin, do uh, put together his memoirs. And he told me, like, when he auditioned for Seinfeld, they kept making him come back. And, like, when they yeah. made him come back for like a sixth time, he's like, hey, guys, I thought the limit was five and you guys had to start paying me. But they should make people because it's so, because I know writers obviously get paid when they're asked to do a treatment of scripts, but then you hear horror stories about that. It's like, Oh yeah, they ended up not going with uh, me, but they went with the other guy. But they used my idea for my treatment, so then they put your name. One hundred percent. So I'm sure they do that with composers too. When you have like four or five people doing it, it's like, hey, we really like you a lot better than the weirdo guy, but we kind of like the weirdo guy score a little bit. So can you mesh this? You know, it's like this right. Thing. Can you just knock it off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no obviously you're, the other composer wouldn't get credit. Oh no! Strike. With that, that's there's what no, I mean. There's, yeah. there's, there's nobody to come out. Yeah, there's nobody to come after for yeah. that. You know, because you can't really. And again, that is one of the shortcomings of music is is uh, in that dynamic is that it's not very it's not very tactile. It's not very tangible. You can talk about it all day, but it's that whole dancing about architecture thing, right? So you have a script, you can read the script. Yeah, and looking at the page, you know, music you have to listen to it and digest it, and it's so variable as to like how people process it. So it's it's uh, it's all over the map. Yeah, man. It is. It's crazy. What, what, so, so this has been so much fun. So, what, some of the newer movies you have that people could check out. Fifty-seven seconds is out there right now. 
Yes, that's that's a that's a first brothers uh, collaboration in a small way. My brother was a producer. Oh, really? And, uh, and then it, my brother's a producer of that movie. It's his movie. And uh, and then uh, him and director Rusty, who was a fantastic guy, great director, um, and was was very uh, was very kind and great with me. Um, yeah, that was a really fun experience, and it's a it's a great movie, and it's out now. And then uh, the other one I did was Hidden Strike, which is so with Jackie cool. Chan and John Cena. Yeah, it's a silly, fun, it's a fun little movie. Yeah, that one, that one's that one's a little bit of a that one's got some tales of woe behind it. That was a, that's <laughs> a that's a harrowing tale. Really? Done. I actually finished that. Yeah, I finished that movie in 2019 or 2020. Yeah. And that then movie's from that old long ago? Ordeal. Really? We, fin- we finished it. Well, I finished it back then. And then I think there, you know, some minor changes happened over the years. But there, that was a whole, that was a whole thing, that movie. That was a. Wow. <laughs> and with COVID, that a, that too? That was a whole thing. So sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, COVID, I'm sure, knocked off. COVID, I'm sure created some scheduling you know conflict you know issues for them yeah, i gotta forward, watch 100%. i gotta watch it because i like those two guys i love jackie chan and john cena is one of those guys like the rock i don't know john cena is pretty funny he's like, he's a, he's a funny guy you know i will say this yeah if you if you think if you find john cena funny you'll enjoy the end credits cool. for hidden strike because i understand they left some of the outtakes there that they couldn't nice. keep in the movie but uh yeah john cena's ad-libs are fantastic He's just a funny. He seems like he's just a funny dude. I never met him, um, or Jackie Chan, uh, but but yeah, man, they're they're a lot of fun on screen. You know, it's a silly movie, but uh, but uh, you know, it's cute. It's cute. Yeah, James John Gunn Cena's said. Great. John Cena is always fantastic. About John Cena, uh, James Gunn said he's one of the best improvisers he's ever worked with, and and James Gunn's obviously like he, he's like a trauma guy, like his beginnings. So he's probably worked with so many people that are allowed to riff on camera to get scenes done in some cases. And he said he's. Like I'm willing to bet that he's. Yeah, he's good because I mean I was watching. I mean, if you watch the again, if you watch the credits at the end of, of Hidden Strike, yeah. you'll see some of John Cena just riffing in the scene, right? But there was even more that was that that's not on there that I saw from the dailies. That's just like, and it doesn't always make sense. But that's what's great is is, is if is if the actor like John Cena doesn't isn't worried about it he's just yeah. let's just try it let's just try it so like he he seems to be one of those guys that just spits it out and just keeps going and keeps going it's a lot of fun man and it's like you know i think he was the the orton at first he was the randy orton first to yeah dwayne johnson if i'm not mistaken so like the rock right like dwayne johnson was like the big guy and then john cena was like the guy that would do the stuff in his wake you know mm-hmm. that, that that the rock would say no to kind of a thing and then yeah. john cena became his own guy and now there's the other guys that will do stuff that are in the wake so maybe that was like the model of wwe you know, to sort of have the Randy Orton sort of sitting in the wake. I don't know if that model still follow, follows now, but yeah, I don't but, uh, even Cena's know if they awesome. do movies anymore. I think WWE, I don't even know if WWE Studios oh, is around. Know. They did a movie oh, a few right? oh. year. They did a movie a few years ago about one of the wrestlers, this girl Paige, who was from Australia, like her life story about being a fan and then eventually making it. I don't know if they do anything anymore, but yeah, no, John Cena, you can't take it away, dude. He's in every big movie, like. That, like for Netflix, that's probably, I don't know what the budget was. I'm sure it was pretty high. But for Hulu, he does like the Vacation Friends movies. They make two of those. He's in every Fast yes. and Furious. Like, what was that? What was that? What was that? Was it Cock Blockers? I think I saw Cock Oh, Cock Blockers. That's a great movie. So, oh, did they change the name? Did they change the name? Oh, yeah, the they did. No, no, yeah. And the logo is uh, Rooster. So it's Blockers with a big oh, rooster oh. behind it. Yeah. I remember in production in the in some of the production lists when they were still yeah. filming it. 
Yeah. You, know, you go you go to IMDb and you'll get some production. It would it was it was called Cockblockers for me. So but what he so in does, my head, that's what it's called. But what he does in that movie, it makes him even cooler because I'm sure a lot of people, especially macho, big heavyweight champion wrestlers, I don't think The Rock would do the butt chug scene in that movie, which is ridiculous. No, no, I think I, I think I mean at least I know for a while I, I believe that I believe that uh, Dwayne Johnson was trying to like do the sort of like the family branding, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I know. Thing. But Cena, yeah, yeah, the butt chugging thing's great. Like, and, and Cena is, a, and, and man, that's the that's the key. It, you know, somebody who's a muscular, good-looking dude is willing to just make an ass out of himself. Yep. You know, it's like on camera, uh, you know, just do whatever it takes to make it funny. It's like, that's what's going to land. Yeah, and he's going to work for a while. He's going to work a long time if he can have that part of him because that's why some people, I think, it's like, oh, you don't want to do that fun. Yeah, we don't know if we need you if you're not going to do like the silly, over the top, ridiculous thing. But uh, no, that's yeah. Awesome. You got to be willing to make fun of yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Like it's like, um, and I think you know he's just doing it in a more overt way than like say the Schwarzeneggers would do it, right? Because like yeah, yeah. I think Schwarzenegger was he was meta too, you mm-hmm. know, with the with the one liners and all that kind of stuff. Like he was in on the joke. It's just that now in 2023, the joke is now like what John Cena is doing, where you're not just being in on the joke that. It's silly that you're the superhero guy or whatever, but now you're going to make an ass out of yourself. You know, big strong guy shoving stuff up his ass and whatever. Yeah, yeah Arnold. Like, Arnold did a whole movie that. making fun of himself. He did uh, Last Action Hero, made fun of That's himself. Right. Like that whole movie was making fun of him. That's right. And, it, and st- somehow right. they convinced because St- him and Stallone didn't like each other, which is so funny. They have that rivalry, and then on Netflix, they both had documentaries come out. Arnold's came out like a yeah. month before. And they, I, I don't know if he has a book out, Stallone, but I know Arnold just had one out. But they had that rivalry. And in the documentary, he talks about how he tricked Stallone into doing Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Was <laughs> oh, that right? He tricked him? How did he trick yeah, him? Yeah, he, he lied and said that he wanted to do it. And there was this, I don't know if there's any movie ever that's that great. one did instead of the other. But I think that's one, probably the only one. Because they made then they made up because... Uh, in Last Action Hero, they're at the video store, and it's Stallone dressed like the Terminator in a cardboard cutout. There's like these little. Things, I don't even but, remember. That's great. Yeah, dude, and even Stallone was That's he was great. meta too because in Tango and Cash he calls him like a Rambo's a pussy. He says yeah, the line yeah, Rambo's a pussy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because the other guy said, "God, I remember. I remember seeing that movie in the theater. That's how yeah. old I am." In. I went. I went to a friend and saw that movie in the mall. At the mall, it hit with a friend, and I actually remember that line. He says something like, "One, one guy says, one guy says he thinks he's Rambo or something like yeah. that." And then, and, and then his response is, "Nah, Rambo's a pussy." That's what he says. <laughs> Which is that's bizarre. Right. So they started getting made. Yeah, yeah. There's something that's. I will say this. That's something that's like very like endearing about the big action movie thing is that sort of like when it can go meta, and it's like they're in on the joke too. It's like, dude, oh are yeah. Nuts. No, they those got are, it. Those are the best ones. You know, that's why, um, I mean, even the first Expendables kind of made sense in that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna round everybody up and show it off, you know, before it got weird, you know? Yeah, no, and, it was uh, really cool. Old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Once you but do yeah, one, man. then it's like, who else can we add to this? And you're like, ah, oh, man, Chuck Norris is 76 and... Yeah. I know it starts to look like a. It looks like it starts to look like a, a you know an, an, AR, an AARP commercial. You know, <laughs> it, starts to, it starts to look like 
It just actually look like not what it's intended. You know what I mean? It's such yeah. crazy. So, but um, hey, this has been awesome, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's, man. It's been it's been a pleasure. It's cool. Yeah, thanks it's cool for talking I, with me. Bo- both of the first brothers. That that's uh, that was cool. <laughs> and, that, and and sharing some stories about your dad and stuff. So now there's a lot of fun. This will be out in a few months, and uh, I'll be sure to send you a link when it gets out there. Yeah, man. Just let me know, and if uh, any time, I'd be happy to to talk about whatever. It's, no, it's um, fun. It's a lot of fun. It's it's a lot of fun talking to people about about uh, about movies who like really like like movies and aren't aren't too caught up in like the process of it. Yeah, like, no. It's in just, this town, you get more. In this town, I'm it can sure. be hard to find somebody who's just a, a fan. Yeah. You know, if you're talking to other people in in, in L.A., it could just in the business it could be hard because everybody's you know everybody's like ah oh, I'm dealing with. You know, whatever it is, you know. So and it's weird to talk, talk about those stories. Like even when uh, when I helped Larry write his book, uh, we connected like just before COVID. I did one of these interviews when I first started, and after I asked him like the second question about his something in his career, he was like, "Hey, man, I don't want to give all this away. I'm trying to write a book." And he's like, "Do you know anybody that does that?" And I had no idea. I just said yes. Kind of like what you mentioned, like when people say, "Hey, can, what, yeah. you, what your dad taught you?" I go, "Yeah." So as soon as I got off the phone, I like researched like. How do you do books? What's the way to do it? And then COVID hit. So like every Saturday, which I don't know why the hell Larry had to do it on a Saturday, but it was like every Saturday for two hours, we just, I go through like sections of his career and a lot of stuff he didn't remember. And he was like, it's so funny. You like, you don't do this stuff. When you see a guy that you worked with on another movie, it's like, Hey, how you been? It was like that. He's like, you never retell these stories. So it's so hard. So I was finding myself making yeah. these clips for Larry to watch beforehand because he wouldn't remember because it, it was so long ago. And a lot of times he was on like one or two days on things like he remembered friends right. because he was on friends like as a sort of recurring character. Seinfeld was a big okay. deal. It was important for him. But uh he had like 200 credits, but it was cool for him to remember because he was in uh, he was in Escape from Alcatraz when he was really young. It was like after he did like uh, like doing like a lot of comedy stuff. Somehow we got that role as being like the third guy to Clint Eastwood in that movie. So he had some like f- fucking wild stories about working about working with Clint. That's wild. Yeah, and he lived in San Francisco, which he was already up that way for a while because that's where he did improv. He was like a one of the first right. like, traveling theaters in a way, but uh, no, it's fun. Maybe, like, that, maybe that's how he got part of that job is they didn't have to pay his per diem or something. Probably. Like, oh, local. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, no, it's been fun, be man. It. Enjoy the rest yeah, of your man, day. Thanks for blast. taking time out of it. And uh, yeah, we'll My talk pleasure, soon. My pleasure, guys. My pleasure. Yeah, man. Right. Until next time. All right, Nathan. Thanks, man. Can you believe, man, he was so much fun, but can you believe Howie Mandel did that? He paid Griff 20 bucks to ruin a scene. While they were filming scene elsewhere, not cool, man. Not cool. <laughs> but could, and also, I, I kind of prefaced in the beginning, but isn't it wild the whole process of composers? Like they're all asking me, like, "Hey, check this out and give us what give us what you think the music could be." So, like I said to Nathan, like, because I've heard those stories when it comes to writers when they're submitting scripts, it's basically like, "Yeah, we really don't like your music, but we have music that we'd love for you to compose." And it could be somebody else's thing. You you know, it could be anything. They can get influenced by it. So it's kind of like this odd. I wasn't expecting that. The director interviews, that makes sense. You go in and say, boom, boom, boom. So I, But I guess the same thing can always happen in an interview. Even an actor interview. Somebody can go in, do a take a certain way, but they want the bigger name. But they say, hey, check this tape out. I, we want you to do it with this energy. So maybe it always happens. But man, I love talking to Nathan. 
And he, you know, he opened the door. We'll talk to you again. It was just fun to talk film because he's a film lover. Not everyone, not saying everybody that, that I've interviewed doesn't love movies, but he seemed like he truly loves movies. Just the way we were, you know, we mentioned Butt Chuck on the podcast. We were able to talk about John Cena in Blockers and that ridiculous scene that he could only do. So I seen him, man. He is at the top of the wrestling actors. I know, you know, The Rock might gross more because of the movies he's in, but it doesn't even come close. So again, thank you, Nathan, if you're listening. So your homework, 12 rounds two, reload it. Andrew Powers is back in the saddle again. And uh, yeah, the buck, the movie's like two or three bucks to rent on Amazon or yeah, one of those. So uh, yeah, I rented it on Prime. But yeah, so don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, follow us on all social media at sequels only, and don't forget to check out our website, sequelsonly.com. Good night. Good night. Good night, guys.